Everybody and welcome back to Butter with That, a movie podcast where some of your favorite people from Philadelphia get together to talk about all things movies. Uh, although Christine, uh, we've never really addressed this. No longer, uh, no longer residing in Philadelphia. That's true. I'm in Richmond currently, and so reporting to us from there. Uh, so yeah, Philly and uh, Philly adjacent uh, podcast where uh, yeah we'll be talking about some movies and we have a pretty exciting. New theme, a lovely new theme, uh, just in time for this, uh, you know, uh, very sort of like sentimental time of the year, uh, things like Valentine's Day and so on. We are getting into uh, a love theme. We've done rom-coms before, but I think uh, well, I'm going to guess that this might be a little bit different, uh, although we'll see. Uh, still have uh, some selections to make coming down the road, so we'll see how that all plays out. But this week, we've got a pretty special one. Uh, that I really enjoyed, which is new to this year. Before we get to that, though, uh, going around the horn and touching base with my lovely co-hosts, Connor, Christine, and Sam. Uh, what's new with you guys? What's on your minds? And what have you been watching? I feel like we've been on a roll recording lately the past couple weeks, so I don't have too much new to report on, uh, which is great that we're, we've just been knocking episodes out. But I did start a new anime last night, uh, a Vinland Saga, which is a Viking anime about the kind of Norse... <clears throat> sort of about the Norse invasion of England around a thousand CE. Uh, so it's kind of seems like they're setting up a pretty classic revenge kind of story, son avenging father kind of tale, but season two premiered and got great reviews. So that's how I first saw it. And I was like, no, I'm kind of in the mood for some Viking anime. That sounds pretty cool. And the first episode had a pretty brutal intro. So I'm excited for some good animated violence to come. So it's on Netflix uh, and season two just premiered. So it's, uh, Still a pretty new anime. So I'll keep everybody updated as I go through. Good time to buy in. Speaking of uh, Netflix animes, I've still not heard a whimper about the supposedly renewed second season of Doro Hidoro. Hoping that comes down the pike at some point. But uh, we'll see what happens with Netflix there. Uh, anybody else? I started a show uh, a couple days ago, not very far into it. But Dark Winds, which is like a detective thriller. It stars... Uh, Zan McLaren, who's like in Reservation Dogs and some other shows, uh, been in a ton of stuff. Um, but this is the first kind of show that uh, he's been the lead in. And it, yeah, it's like a 70s detective kind of thriller. So it's so far, it's good. And I'm going to keep keep following it. Exciting. Speaking of Reservation Dogs, we'll uh, have a little tie in with that through this week's episode. So that's interesting. How about you, Sam? One, apologies if you can hear my roommate vacuuming. Two, I have watched absolutely nothing. I have really been preoccupied with uh, my move that's coming up in about six weeks. And uh, really what I've been going on nonstop about is my new car. Her name is Georgia. And uh, I've never loved anything more other than my cat, Phoebe. It's a big development. No. Oh. And a lot of big developments, Sam. Uh, of course, uh, yeah, the upcoming move. So um, we'll be uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, getting some correspondence right from the uh, backyard of old Hollywood, California itself. 
Uh, well, I suppose uh, I don't have a whole lot to uh, report on other than the topic of the day, that being our first entry in our love theme. Uh, this is going to be probably a pretty uh, interesting discussion because it's a pretty slight, uh, pretty sparse and pretty small scale film, but one that really impressed me uh, upon its release this year and one that's really stood out for me. One that you'll be hearing more about, I would wager, within our upcoming awards episode. Um, so something to keep a pin on. And that movie, of course, uh, 2020's A Love Song, uh, that a film directed by Max Walker Silverman, his uh, debut feature, stars story character actors Wes Studi and Dale Dickey, among a handful of others. Uh, as I said before, a pretty small-scale story. It's, in essence, <clears throat> a film that follows a character named Faye, a slightly older and widowed woman who has uh, decided to set up camp at a Colorado campground where she is awaiting the arrival of uh, Lido, friend and classmate of hers from her youth, uh, who is now himself a widower, meeting just to to reconnect, to see if they can um, re-enter an openness to uh, other people and uh, romantic relationships and uh, romantic excursions, as uh, the film makes use of several times. And... Uh, yeah, pretty, uh, a pretty unique and and intimate uh, small scale picture, and one that I really enjoyed. I know this to be everybody's first time seeing it, so going around the horn here, what was everyone's impression of a love song? I enjoyed it. I watched it with Heather. Uh, Dave, Heather has asked me to ask you this question, uh, which is, do you like to be sad? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, interestingly enough, I mean. Um, you know, this is a little break from uh, the usual thing, Dave's contrarian corner, to this more uh, Dave's sentimental corner. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, oh, no, that won't do. Hold on. Um, yeah, I I, I, uh, I do like movies that are a little bit more dour and melancholic most of the time. That having been said, I find this one to be, you know, a little bit heartbreaking, but also extremely optimistic in a lot of ways. So uh, I guess I found I found it to, to radiate a kind of optimism that. Uh, that is maybe cloaked in uh, some sadder circumstances throughout the film. So I guess that would be my response. <laughs> well, she's sitting right here, so she heard that. So there you go. Yeah, so I liked it. Heather liked it. But we both sort of agreed, like, once is enough. Because it it does really take you on that ride. You feel like you're right there with her, with him, and you're experiencing everything. So I liked it. Yeah, I think I would have to agree with Almost everything that Sam said. It's cool watching a new movie. Dave, I think you said it might have came out in 2020, but that it came out this year, right? Yeah, it was October of this year. Yeah, so it's At cool. least as far as uh, streaming release. Yeah, so we don't really get to talk about new, new movies. That often happens once in a while. So it's fun to... I Sounds like this movie's going to get a lot of buzz uh, come award season, whether for our awards or uh, the Oscars and whatnot. Oh, I don't think you're going to be hearing about this elsewhere, to be honest. It's it's <laughs> flown under a lot of radars, but uh, but yeah, you'll, you'll be hearing about it on ours. Overall, I think I really enjoyed it as a is a slice of life kind of um, tonal piece about we're with these characters, just about 20, you know, 48 ish hours, really. Um, maybe her, you know, Faye at the beginning is a little more, but I, I really enjoyed the intimate nature of the storytelling. Uh, it is quietly heartbreaking, but uh, Dave, I'm glad you brought up the kind of optimistic tone because I do think the movie ends on kind of a happy note, which is we'll get to what happens at the end of the movie but uh overall yeah i think i really really enjoyed it and i don't know if i need to watch it again 
But there were also so many f- interesting little details that made me want to go back and watch it again, too. So I'm a little conflicted uh, of if I am happy, you know, satisfied with this first viewing and let it sit, or if I want to dive back in and try to pick apart and think about the interesting details that were cooked into the film. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with uh, everything that everyone said. Um, I mean, this movie gives me a lot of Kelly Reichard vibes, a lot of Deborah Granick mm-hmm. vibes. So I'm all for it. You know, watching movies like this that are that really take their time, uh, that are not overly um, scripted as far as dialogue, and really let sort of scenery tell the story, tell aspects of the story as well. Uh, really, I watch movies like this, and I'm like, oh, like. I would love to make a movie. <laughs> and uh, so this is just a wonderful reminder of beautiful, subtle storytelling and performances. Uh, Dale Dickey, I like never really, I- I've seen a bunch of movies with her in it, but it was really wonderful to see a movie showcasing her and such an expressive face and uh, performer. And so, yeah, I mean, it. yeah, it's just like a, Beautiful, quiet, slow movie. And yeah, Dale Dickey and um, Wes Studi, both, um, you know, seasoned character actors. You might recognize um, Wes Studi from a number of films, Dances with Wolves, Last of the Mohicans, Street Fighter, Heat, Deep Rising, The Horse Whisperer, Mystery Men, a whole litany of others. Dale Dickey also having uh, had a pretty huge career, both in film and television, uh, boasting a career that includes The X-Files, Frasier, ER, Gilmore Girls. Uh, Ugly Betty, My Name is Earl, Breaking Bad, Bones, Criminal Minds, uh, and a a variety of others. Also going on to uh, win the uh, Independent Spirit Award for her role in Winter's Bone, that back in uh, 2010. So a familiar face to to folks who really pay attention to uh, career character actors, but it really gives them the main stage, which I really enjoyed. And I think that they bring these characters to life into very, I got to keep returning to the word slight, uh, slight and subtle ways uh, throughout the course of this film. How do we feel about these two performances, these two characters, their dynamic, uh, their hopes for reconnection and ultimately where things end up? I feel like they, as we've talked about, like, is the story sentimentally sad? Is it hopeful? All of these things have been brought up. I think that range of emotion is conveyed through Faye. And I think Dale in the hands of Dale Dickey, there's some wonderfully sort of playful and comedic moments, especially when you see her go through her daily routines, reciting birds she hears, and then the sort of slight movements of her face. About, uh, maybe not slaps. Slapstick is not quite the right word, but there's there's something wonderfully, um, I, as I said before, playful about the way she uh, embodies the character of, of Faye, that you believe that she is a woman that can just, or draw meaning from living out by a lake in the middle of rural Colorado and spend her days naming birds, getting crawfish from the lake, and then looking at the stars at night and being like, yep, this is me. But that there's this longing and yearning for the expect, you know, for the arrival of what we'll find out is Lido. So all of that range of of emotion is definitely beautifully conveyed in in Dale Dickey's performance. But I really enjoyed uh, some of the uh, more sort of uh, yeah lighter comedic moments as well. 
I think one of the most beautiful scenes is when Leto takes a picture of her and she's like, wow, I, I haven't had anyone take a picture of me in seven years. And that's depressing in some ways. And I, I certainly know when I'm feeling depressed, uh, I, I can tell in my uh camera roll because I don't take selfies uh what that says about me whatever but it comes back around at the very end he sends her that picture and that's how the the movie sort of wraps up and how she drives away just like with that picture on in her passenger seat so I don't know you're right in saying that it is kind of hopeful and optimistic and I really enjoyed the um interplay between the two of them of this you know you, I think the movie does a really great job at hinting at a lot of subtly discussing their past, how they feel about each other. I love learning about the glimpses of their childhood, the anecdotes, the stories that they tell. Just a really kind of heartwarming movie uh, that an, a different version could end up being totally heartbreaking. But I think, re- you know, reasonably, you know, ends in an interesting, very natural sort of way of. He's not quite ready to move on with another kind of romantic or that kind of relationship. And so just kind of peacefully, quietly ends. And she has to come to to terms with that, of this longing, of this waiting, of feeling stuck at this campsite. She doesn't seem like she's upset, you know, being in this routine and this, you know, solitude. Uh, But I think it was a really interesting journey of seeing somebody kind of complacent with where they are, of waiting, of wanting, and then coming to a realization on their own that they can move on with their life that there is more beyond waiting for this person to come or maybe even more than a romantic relationship. Not sure it's getting that deep, but uh, those are sort of things I was thinking about as the film was going along. Uh, I would say you're definitely on the right track uh, for some reasons that we'll, we'll get to uh, toward the end. And what I think uh, speaks to this film's, I guess, veiled, but radiant optimism, at least, yeah, it was my takeaway. So the way that, yeah, this really plays out is for for a while, we just observe Faye sort of waiting at the lakeside for Leto's arrival. Uh, she seems pretty unclear as to when or if he will arrive. Like at one point, she's there in her trailer before he's arrived, before uh, any of that's really been all that established, even within the narrative of, of the film. And we see her pull out a calendar, this calendar entirely blank. And she just closes her eyes, dots a Sharpie down on a random date, and marks it today, that being sort of her own internal deadline as far as how long she's willing to wait and continue this routine of solitude and um, anticipation, I guess. And then when he does arrive, I really love that this film allows it to be awkward, to feel awkward, that these two are a little bit stilted, that they you know haven't communicated in many, many years. They haven't seen each other in decades. They both lived their own complicated separate lives that have both been impacted by tragedy of a deep and personal and uh, resonant level and watching their dynamic sort of flow out of awkwardness and into familiarity and into sort of like mutual affection but not necessarily in 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 a romantic or intimately sexual way uh, I think is is pretty profound and pretty interesting. And uh, the sort of, I guess, for if, if if we're to call it a love story, the sort of love story that we don't see very often. I feel like you don't get to see love stories with, I don't, I'm not going to say like elderly, because they're not elderly, but um, people it's who... Older, yeah. Yeah, people who are older and people who look like they are like wearing 
the the trauma and the weight of their life. Mm-hmm. You don't really get to see that that often. And so it was kind of refreshing to see people who look like people. Yeah, and who act like people. I think there's not a lot of snappy dialogue to be found here. I think it's all pretty convincing, diagenic. Again, returning to that word once again, and uh, as I'll continue doing very slight, very subtle, very uh, underplayed, but still in a way that uh, communicates a lot about the the depths of their character. Another thing that I think is interesting is that we don't really get into a whole lot of details about their former partners, um, their former husband or former wife, respectively. We do, we do get some glimpses through their conversations with each other that we know that Faye's husband was in a band uh, that used to play at churches on Sundays. Uh, we get the impression that Leto was uh, also a musician, but his wife was the one who really carried the passion passion for musician within their relation musicianship within their relationship. Uh, and I think it's an interesting choice not to explore their backgrounds and to give us that found that character foundation, but to just let us sit in this moment with them. Uh, it almost makes it feel. Yeah, it, you, you, someone might make the argument that it deprives us of character depth via their backstories, but I would argue that it provides us a, a deeper insight into where they are now and uh, the roads that they've traveled to get there. Well, and it lets you <clears throat> fill in a little bit of the blanks yourself. It doesn't, you know, spoon feed you this whole relationship. You don't go through the photo album and there's no big 10 minute exposition scene for each of them talking about the ups and downs of the past, like 20, 30 years. You get it in glimpses, trips and drabs, bits and pieces. And it's also, I think, understandable that um, there's some information that the audience doesn't know that these two characters have just maybe know. And I just really enjoyed how it just trusted you to just kind of, you know, live in this moment with them instead of trying to think about the past 30 years you know, of their lives. So I, I really enjoyed that, uh, I guess, writing risk of just kind of leaving things a little up in the air for the audience. And it, you get enough to really, I think you get just enough to really understand where they're coming from. You get a sense of the fact that uh, Faye met her uh, husband who her, di- her partner who died like later on in life. And then you also get a sense of like how Lido still is missing his part. Like they, when they're setting up the campsite, there's a reference to, is, was her name Stacy or, or uh, he's like, Oh, you know, so-and-so was the real camper and that, you know, she was able to set up camp quicker than I was. And so you, you see his uh, sort of recollections of his relationship and how he's, really trying to process it and, and still kind of hanging on to his former love uh, wherever, you know, wherever she went. And there's nothing that I hate more than dialogue that is unnecessary expositional dialogue. It's just when you hear it and see it in a movie, it's just especially movies that are trying to be a little bit more subtle, but it's just there's no restraint when it comes to writing dialogue that feels real. It's like trust your audience to to be able if it's a good performance and if it's a well-written screenplay, you don't need an entire sit-down conversation that was like, oh, you know, those were the days when Bobby and I would walk together in the dusty hills of the Colorado. <laughs> and it's like you don't need any of that bullshit. What's happening is what's playing before you, and you can pick up on the subtle clues of the that the movie is providing and that's yeah that's enough yeah and there's a lot of things it, it trusts the audience to make a lot of inferences through uh what appears to be very naturalistic dialogue that isn't 
expositional. Christine, like you brought up, Leto in particular, referring to his uh, his uh, his former spouse. And yeah, it almost becomes like this heartbreaking catchphrase of his, this this thing that recurs. It happens twice, he says, of uh, of her setting up the tent is uh well, she was the real camper. That was that was what she did. Um, and then you also have him very awkwardly like trying to play guitar for Faye, and it's like you know, him trying to show off a skill that he has, but he's a little bit rusty. And he goes on to explain like, well, you know, I never felt it the way that she did. That was that was what she did, which is almost just the way that he summarizes the entirety of her character and the impact that it's had on him. And it's a wonderful moment, too, where the director lets those scenes play out like that whole duet between Lido and Faye. Uh, Lido asks Faye if she's still playing music and she responds so wonderfully like, no, like you idiot. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, of course not. And so you see, yeah, Lido pull out his guitar, uh, and then she's got a guitar too, and they sing quite beautifully. Sing this duet, and it's it feel it's just one take. Uh, it feels wonderfully uh, kind of beautiful, but rough, and it yeah, everything feels uh, in that scene feels really naturalistic. Uh, and I think it also connects to the importance that music plays throughout the entire film. Uh, Faye has this activity where she has this radio and she'll just randomly turn the dial to whatever station comes on. And she'll, she'll, she says to Lido at some point, you know, whatever song is playing, somehow that becomes the song that I want to listen to. And that's the song I need. And so there's a beautiful relationship between the songs and sounds uh, that come through the radio. Then you you start thinking about the songs of the birds that she hears and identifies. And it becomes these sort of sound moments that speak to her in whatever state she's in, like whatever thought she has or state she's in. Uh, and I really loved the relationship between the characters and the songs that play and then the songs that they also sing. Yeah, and this it's especially the the um the almost like magically appropriate uh tuned radio and and the, the spinning dial. This movie does walk for me and for my taste dangerously close to uh like almost magic realism or or a sort of very twee sense of surrealism that I'm normally not that into. And that, that extends into a lot of our side characters, like uh, the guy that comes by and delivers the mail. Uh, there is a family of like ranch hands who visit her at the campsite asking that she move her camper because their father has been buried underneath it ages ago. And they want to move him to another location because it's not as uh, scenic an environment as it used to be. And uh, they they uh, speak collectively through their youngest sibling, this uh, little girl who who approaches Faye and is pretty much their spokesman. And it's the kind of stuff that is a little bit twee for my taste. But I think because the central relationship is so grounded, it evens things out a little bit, at least. for I, me. Yeah, I was I was a little less convinced by especially the cowboy and little spokesperson cowboy girl uh, or ca- cowgirl. Excuse me. <laughs> um, and. Uh, yeah, it did feel like it took those moments and especially their, or like her, the little girl's dialogue kind of took me out of it. I was like, oh, this is kind of a different movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, yeah, the like male person riding up or like walking his horse up as the letter carrier. And those, yeah, I, I would totally agree, Dave, that it does walk 
kind of a dangerous line, potentially could undercut a lot of the naturalism uh, of the or naturalistic elements of the rest of the movie and and Faye and Leto's um, dynamic. A couple of things that I did really want to discuss as well. I mean, Christine, you've already alluded to it uh, and brought it up. The the wonderful scene with the two of them playing together. I really like the way that it's edited as well. As you as you mentioned, uh, the scene prior to it ends with Leto asking, do you still play? And she asks, what music? And he's like, yeah. And she says, of course not. Uh, but then before the scene cuts and we go to the next scene, you can hear the strumming from the next scene. So it kind of like moves us really elegantly into this next moment, which is <clears throat> the two of them uh, playing the song Be Kind to Me, sort of a folk staple. Uh, between the two of them, Leto on his like electric guitar with a like tiny practice amp and Faye with an acoustic. Faye doesn't really seem to know the song. So Leto's walking her through the chord progression before they begin strumming it together and singing. And it starts as initially pretty awkward, like stilted, you know, like someone teaching someone a song on guitar, especially someone that uh, pro proclaims themselves to be a little bit rusty and removed from playing music themselves. But as it goes on, like it just builds in these these quiet, like almost um, almost body language ways. Uh, like they it, suddenly the strumming becomes a little bit more confident, especially after Faye comes in with I think it's the fourth verse, the uh, bullfrog sitting on a lily pad, and you can see West Duty's character Leto like kind of chuckling to himself, getting more comfortable with it, and it turns what is like initially an intimate yet awkward moment into something soaring between the two of them through this song and i think holding on just the one shot as they continue through the song and build it together uh makes for a really powerful and really memorable moment within the within this film something that did also one more thing that took me out of it was so it's wonderful seeing her fish for crawdads or whatever she's fishing for but it looks like that's her that's the only thing that she eats mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, that is not a system. Like, there's no way she could be there for I don't know how many weeks and just subsist on these crayfish. Or maybe it's crayfish. And so I... I oh, we also see her eat ice cream. Uh, but I really wanted to know a little bit more about her day-to-day -day basic functions. Yeah, the the diet of crawfish and uh, uh, bush beer. Bush beer... That's that's and pretty then, rough. <laughs> like, yeah, but I guess I don't need everything, but there was just I would just wanted to like see some other element of her for every day to keep it grounded. I could not stop thinking about the crawfish. I was like, <laughs> like why? Why do we keep coming back to this? And I even kept thinking about them today and uh Connor when we were leaving work we kind of came to the conclusion of like, well, maybe it's like a metaphor or analogy of like the, at first she gets like a, like a decent amount of crawfish, but as time goes on, it gets less and less and less. And that's like her willingness to, to stay there and wait for somebody and instead like, you know, value herself. Like she's ready to move on when she finally, and like when she's ready to leave, she pulls it out of the water and there's absolutely nothing in it. So maybe, maybe it's not supposed to mean anything other than that, or I don't know. But also, Christine, you bring up something that, like, I, I also have beef with this movie for two things. Uh, one was the ice cream scene. Uh, with a knife? I, like, I couldn't get over that. So, what she, yeah, what she's saying is, like, to, to, to Lito is, like, 
I've been trying to, uh, and it's a really, it's a sweet moment that doesn't make sense because like she's saying, like, I've been trying to do this alone for like seven years and I still haven't figured it out, which is very tender. Like it, it shows that she's, she not only, um, she's not only open to companionship, but in a sense feels that she kind of needs it. She needs someone, someone to hold to help her, her phone for her. Right. Um, sweet. that having been said, you know, get a, get a scoop. <laughs> yeah. And also there's barely no ice cream in both of those cones. I was like, that is not like a good dessert. Like, fuck that. And then also the other thing is they made a point to show us her sleeping habits. Often the, the thin pillows, how could anybody sleep on those thin pillows? So if that, those are the only like things that I have that that's beef, then the movie's pretty good. Well, the one thing that we do get that's insight into Faye's um, interiority and, and actual life beyond her anticipating Leto's arrival uh, and eating crawfish and drinking beer is that she has two books and only two books in her trailer. And those are the Audubon Society's uh, Guide to uh, North American Birds, as well as uh, a guide to the night sky. And she's she says uh, very poignantly at one point while she's talking to Leto, when he asks her what she does, it's like, well, I have two books, uh, one for the day and one for the night. And that will tie in a bit to uh, what I think is is really optimistic and powerful about the end of this movie. But before we get to that, how do we feel about the way that their dynamic unspools, the way that it ends? How do we feel about Leto making the decision after their their one day and one night spent together to pack things up and to uh, head off on his own and not pursue this any further? unexpected but realistic I think for people who are still in that healing journey and it ends up leading to like one of the most beautiful scenes ever when she goes up to the mountain peak herself and then she spends that night there it was just gorgeous but it also made me think of like I know that when I'm ready to die I want to tell my family like I'm just I'm going to the woods and I just want to like die in the woods myself and I made a joke to Heather I was like oh what is she gonna do go up there and die from exposure and I didn't mean like (laughs) for her to actually do that and I don't think that that was her intention but like I wonder what her intention was after that moment yeah, I also thought that was a really beautiful moment of this kind of journey into the wilderness and such a, we haven't talked much about the cinematography, which I think we'll get into more, uh, but the transition from the lake and this plains is kind of dry. There's some flowers here or there to this beautiful forest of, I think, uh, aspen trees, uh, then ascending up into the hills. So we get a lot of visual changes. Uh, the character walks into the woods to search for inner meaning and looks to the sky for potential answers. Uh, but it's done in such like an honest and quiet way. And she just lays down. And I, Sam, I also thought she was just going to die. Oh, okay. That's that's it. And then no, like looking to the sky for greater meaning, calling back to the uh, the astronomy book that she had, guiding through the stars. For whatever reason, I didn't have subtitles on, so I missed a little bit, and I always usually do. So I missed a little of exactly what she was saying, but Andromeda's brought up a few times and kind of talking about the Greek mythology that you know, the characters, the constellations were inspired by, and then, of course, see the whole Milky Way. So I just thought it was, yeah, a really beautifully shot scene, like most of the movie is beautifully shot um, and executed. But to, you know, not get ahead of myself with the cinematography, to go back to your original question about kind of how this relationship fizzles out, uh, yeah, it just seems very natural, very, uh, it's incredibly understandable. You know, she can't get upset with Leto because it's, how can you get upset with someone who's not ready to move on from, you know, their spouse, that marital relationship, that long-term relationship? 
And I thought it was an interesting visual callback to when we first see Leto of where he has the yellow flowers in his hand, staring, standing kind of awkwardly at the door to the trailer. It's like an uncomfortable, seems like, I don't know if anyone else got that vibe, but like an unnatural position, something just felt off, a little awkward about that. So I thought that was an interesting visual representation of like, oh, he's just not quite ready to go in. When we first see him, he's not quite ready to go into the trailer. And 24 hours later, he's still not ready to metaphorically move through that doorway into a different phase of his life. So I thought that was a really interesting visual callback. And the fact that he also remembered what her favorite flowers were speaks to that. There is some caring that there is this, you know, he really cares about her knows her, but it's just not quite right yet. I really like that too, Connor, because yeah, what I, what I initially perceived him approaching the trailer for the first time, uh, it turns out that she is outside the trailer because she fell asleep in this canoe. She's been gifted again, a little bit more of the kind of twee side of the movie, but, um, when she awakens, yeah, she finds him uh, facing the trailer, but um, seemingly not having knocked. And initially, I perceive that as nervousness. But then in the end, you come to understand that it's perhaps apprehension, which is interesting. Oh, I guess another gripe I have, um, and this is not even a really big deal, but uh, Leto has a dog, and the dog presumably stays outside the whole night. That, like, really stressed me out also. Um, <laughs> I know that, like, the the wilderness, we, we don't really see any animals other than, like, birds and the crawfish. But I was like, damn, dude, like, what the fuck here? Any kind of predator could be around and getting that dog. So I would, like, like I don't know. I just, like, Leto be more a responsible pet owner is what I'm saying. Yeah, people not uh, keeping an eye on their dogs is something that always pisses me off. Well, I suppose their parting, yeah, to me is interesting in a lot of ways. Like Connor, like Connor, as you have said, I think in the hands of a lesser screenplay or a lesser director, this could easily be the kind of thing where we veer too hard into sympathy for Faye's view on this whole thing. Because it, we are largely seeing it through her eyes. We're introduced to her before Leto. We kind of follow her narrative understanding and arc through to the end even after he's left. So it, it, it does seem as though it could be the kind of thing that becomes very one-sided uh, and the kind of thing that we could be maybe dismissal of Leto's decision. But I think this movie's smart enough and informed enough about grief and compassionate enough about his subject matter that it keenly understands that. And both of these characters, I think, keenly understand that it, it's it's perfectly valid to to deal with grief in your own way and to go through the stages of it at your own pace and... Uh, I don't think casts either of them in a negative light for for being honest about that, which I find to be somewhat rare in a lot of movies, but um, one that really strengthens the movie and one that really speaks to, again, how informed this film is about its subject. Um, and then the film kind of winds down after he's left. She's, she's seen uh, sitting at, at the base of her trailer, the stairs leading up into it as he leaves. Uh, then it holds on this shot of just her sitting at the trailer at mi like midday. And then it just uh, immediate hard cut to like the exact same angle, but it's the dead of night and she's still sitting there it's as though she's been sitting there all afternoon, just processing and digesting all of this. She then gets up and takes the, I think it's wild rabbit brush is the flower that he left for her. She sets it there on the ground of the campsite where we know uh, the uh, father uh, figure of this, uh, this family group to have, uh, have been buried. And sets them on the ground on top, almost as, and just says softly to herself, okay. In a way, almost as though she's she, she's recognizing that uh, through this dynamic with Leto, through uh, the 
the imposition that she is imposing on this this campsite because of the family's want to exhume their their past father, her own grief and uh, dealing with death and uh, and all that. It seems as though she's really surrounded by death in a way. But in that moment, sets down the flowers, says to herself, okay, and in a sense, sort of makes some kind of peace with it. The next morning, she wakes up and decides that she's going to make the long trek up into the mountain. And it takes all day. Some gorgeous cinematography to be found there. And then, yeah, as as we said, it's it's a little difficult to pin down uh, as it's unfolding what she's going for or what, what that journey is supposed to mean or illustrate about where her character is, how we're, how we're supposed to... Uh, perceive and unpack it, especially because when she does lay down on top of this mountain, the highest peak in uh, California or uh, Colorado, we're told, it just cuts to black and it seems as though the movie is perhaps over. Then the very next shot that we have is her seemingly waking up. It's a close, tight shot on her face. And she almost just gasps as she's looking upward. And then we see what she's looking at. It's the majesty of the stars, the universe all around her. And uh, she's actually woken by the call of the morning dove. This, again, going back to her two books, uh, the Audubon Society book on uh, birds and bird calls, constellations, uh, these things that she finds a deep connection to and a, a, a deep and enriching interest in. And after this experience, seeing her wake up on top of this mountain with the, you know, the Milky Way on like beautifully photographed display and identifying the different stars, identifying the different constellations and uh, her knowledge of it. It just sort of feels to me very much like a, a character recognizing a, a universe, a surrounding universe in bloom that is is bigger than life and death, bigger than necessarily like relationships and everything. And though though I I know her to because of everything we've seen, know her to still be struggling with this longing, but almost just looking up at at literally everything around her and saying to herself, "Okay," especially so much so because. Like I, I, I myself am a ne- neither a religious or spiritual person, but I do consider the universe to be something of a cradle, uh, something that, in spite of you know its constant existential horror, is also, as I said, like sort of also constantly in bloom if you're really paying attention. And it just reminded me a whole lot uh, the ending of this movie and that moment for her that she has for herself, reconnecting with her surroundings and her interests on her own terms, having made peace with this uh, disappointment. And uh, and this longing that probably still lingers just reminded me a whole lot of the song All Is Full of Love by Bjork. Uh, so just a couple lyrics offhand of that song. Uh, and again, that's not the whole song, but I think all of this really applies. Uh, lyrics being, you'll be given love, you'll be taken care of, you have to trust it. Maybe not from the sources you have poured yours, maybe not from the directions you are staring at. Twist your head around, it's all around you. All is full of love all around you. And I think that that's... That's the end of this movie to me is is having having dealt with all of this loss, having dealt with the disappointment at her hopes of reconnection with someone who similarly understands that loss and then has a moment to herself where she can just take a breath and recognize the grandeur she's already been observing with new eyes. Yeah, uh, I think the departure of Lido really, as you were saying, Dave sets this in motion that it's it's a pivotal moment because it's the only time we see this character leave the very specific for lack of a better term like confines of like the campground and the lake but it's like mm-hmm. 
once Leto leaves, that's that moment where she basically decides to ascend the tallest point in the whole area and explore the new landscape and all of the vegetation that's there. And it also feels like her, as you were saying, her relationship with her surroundings change. It beca- it like moves from this exercise of identification, categorization. It's like she's following this Audubon book and she'll wake up every morning and be like, that's the morning dove. That's the kestrel. And it felt very sort of routine and rote. And then in that moment after Lido leaves, it's like, it's not an exercise in identifying the landscape. It's like a, it's like a movement through and communion with like, like her surroundings. And I like makes you question, like wonder if she would have been moved to, to have those moments if something like Lido's departure hadn't really been the impetus to just like be like, I want to go out and see what else is out there around me uh, in this in this rugged landscape. And a great point. Yeah. The, I mean, the the mountain looms large and beautiful and grand in the background the whole time. But we're we're still confined to this very small space. So, yeah, that that illustration, the semiotic importance of that journey and uh, exploring the sort of like varied landscape of this this place, um, I, I think only yeah, further cements and proves that point. And I think if I'm not mistaken, previous attempts, at least us, the audience have seen her trying to stargaze. It was pretty cloudy or it wasn't like terribly mm-hmm. successful or terribly meaningful. And so it's not till the end where we get that payoff of, you know, like the bird. She can identify all of this and the sky opens up when before things were clouded, things were obscure. But now there's clarity at the highest point in the area. So that was a nice touch. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you know, uh, unpacking and then dealing with uh, that kind of deeply felt and resonant grief uh, is as arduous as climbing a mountain. But at a certain point, you reach the summit and uh, there you are. And if you're connecting her movement from sort of the routine desire, like routine desires to identify and categorize, if you applied that to like her life moments and trajectory, it's like, oh, according to sort of the prescriptive narrative of overcoming grief or love is to find suddenly a new partner or like new love. It's like, that's what I'm told to do. But it's this departure from that sort of prescriptive formula. And she's doing something different and beyond category, which I think you can maybe draw some connections between the desire to go into, you know, the new forest or ascend the mountain and her understanding of like, what's next, you know? Having said all that though, one thing that does frustrate me is when she has completed this trek and is coming back down the mountain, it takes her another whole day. One set of characters we haven't talked about are uh, this uh, lesbian couple who live, well, not who live, who are also camping nearby and who she has some interactions with. Their their whole vacation has been built upon the pretense that uh, one will propose to the other at one point. uh, And then there will be a marriage and a long-lasting relationship, but one of them is apprehensive about it. So when she comes back down from the mountain after having all these uh, meaningful realizations that we can like, you know, uh, we can decipher through metaphor. The first thing that she does is reapproach, uh, the, the one woman who is doubtful and say like, Hey, I think you should do it. So it is like, yeah, like, which like I, I recognize is probably less of, 
less about like, you know, uh, marital long lasting relationship bonds or, or anything like that. So much as it is about embracing the opportunities that life provides, but it does, it does feel contradictory a little bit, which is weird, which is, uh, one of the, one of the few dings I would give this movie, I would say. And having said all that as well, uh, yeah, and then in the end, uh, you know, as she goes to leave the campsite, she's finally decided she's going to leave and uh, offers up the campsite to uh, the family so they can exhume their father. As she's driving away, she has one last run in with the mail carrier who uh, up to now has given her no mail except for the message that Leto is going to arrive after he's already arrived, uh, which I thought was a pretty cute moment. But um, yeah, she uh, she receives this the, the photo that uh, Leto took and has has her own little crystallized and and permanent memory of not only the experience and the time shared with Lido but of of say a version of herself that was opening up a bit you know she was reluctant to be photographed but then ultimately said like all right yeah if you really want to I'll do it and still has that keepsake after having herself had this realization and this sort of like groundbreaking transcendent exploration of what what there is for her with the rest of her life beyond her longing. It's just a really nice moment of closure there. So an interesting story. Uh, before we really kind of wind things down, I uh, did, as Connor mentioned, want to highlight uh, the cinematography by Alfonso Herrera Salcido. This movie is fantastically shot. Uh, like even so much so that within the first like three or four frames when I watched it for the first time, I was just like, oh, it's just got that almost like timeless photochemical uh, sheen to it like a real grit and a real like obvious film grain um but you could tell that it's it's heightened by like color correction and like extreme saturation and it's shot almost entirely using natural light it, just the way that this film just the way the celluloid captures these images like it, it i can feel the warmth of the sun in these scenes when they're floating on the canoe and leto dips his hand into the water i feel like i know the temperature of that water it's just so uh so textural and so like so beautifully captured uh on film not not only the grand not, not only because of the like opportunistic grandeur of scenic colorado but just the, of the details and of how meticulously considered the cinematography and filmmaking was and i think how light naturally can make surroundings change warmth you know can make things warmer lack of light can make things colder and so you know it's a great use of natural light to make what is ostensibly a static landscape feel so dynamic and feel so different so you never quite you know you're never quite bored with your surround like everything in the film every background feels different uh just because they're letting nature kind of do what nature does with maybe some post production color assistance but if it, if it is there, it does not feel intrusive at all. And it's also the the choice of what Colorado landscape to situate this story in. You mm -hmm. know, like if you wanted an easy beauty background, pick the Colorado Rockies or you know, something mm -hmm. like sort of like typically picturesque, like within a Western or like Colorado landscape. But this setting is very not only isolated but like there's one little hill that becomes the looming mountain even though you know in the rest of that area or like Colorado they're like much bigger mountains but like it's like a little lake pond and then one peak 
And then that's it. And I love the also the spareness and restraint in the chosen landscape. And I think the director and writer like grew up maybe around that area as well. So probably is really familiar mm-hmm. with, you know, what what's there and and you get little slices of life moments of like it's an area where there's sheep herders and things like that. Cause I was getting kind of the like Chloe Zhao, like beautiful sunsets, beautiful landscapes. And I feel like there are some parallels between Nomadland and this story as well, uh, which mm-hmm. maybe is for another conversation. Uh, but I feel like these, the restraint and I guess also the, the one setting and the, the specific setting, I, I appreciate it as well. Even inside the RV, I am someone who spent a lot of my teen years camping, specifically camping in RVs and trailers. And every bit of that RV, I felt and I knew what it would (laughs) sound like when it opened, if you touched it, what it would smell like. So it was just, yeah, they were filming inside of a real real RV. And, And, you know, sometimes when they do that in movies, you're like, yeah, but it's like they're making it up on a soundstage. No, like they were filming inside here. But except for the thin pillows, was that not believable? That was also believable, (laughs) but it bothered me because I would bring my own pillows. It it, it feels like a tech, a very texture heavy movie, both I think literally and metaphorically with uh, Sam and Pay brought the details of like, yeah, you could smell it. And she's like making that like coffee in the tin over and over again. And the match that lights the burner, the wallpaper, the seating, like the, I don't know. Yeah. I feel it in the cracked ground, the water surface, the leaves, the trees, when I think of this movie, I think of a lot of like texture, um, if that makes sense. And especially, yeah, at the the midpoint of her ascension up the mountain, when she arrives at this like impossibly golden forest, it's just some it's some jaw dropping visual stuff. It uh, looked like it was straight out of Elden Ring for those who understand. <laughs> it was just, it was just very funny. I and I made that joke to Elisa, and she was like, "Shut up." So I suppose unless uh, anyone has anything that they'd like to add, that kind of sees us through the film A Love Song. Uh, Sounds like Connor uh, may have something that he'd like to say. I've got two quick points I want to bring up. Last time we talked about Royal Tenenbaums, and I just could not help myself but chuckling at the flat shot of the family of cattle ranchers. Just felt like something out of Mm. Wes Anderson, of the the little girl still in the outfit, the brothers, the guy has like long braids. I don't know, just the the flat shot of the A A to B reverse flat head-on shots just felt very Wes Anderson. After just you know, talking about it with this quirky, weird family, especially Owen Wilson's character, Eli, wearing a cowboy outfit, um, just couldn't help but chuckle a little. That's the thing. And that's kind of take, it's like, oh, this is a different movie. This could be a Wes Anderson movie, but it's like, those are moments where it couldn't quite decide what movie it was. <laughs> Not that filmmakers can't have a Wes Anderson moment, but you're totally right, Connor. And the second, and, yeah, a lot of shot composition too, that definitely reminds me of, of Anderson's work. The second point I just want to bring up quick is I, there was this moment that kept me guessing and generally the, camera like there's not a whole like it doesn't feel like the camera is like its own being its own character it Mm -hmm. feels very much like we the audience are sitting with these folks but when Faye wakes up and Leto's not next to her 
and then she goes out, we are with Faye in this moment and not seeing the surrounding. And so for maybe like five to seven seconds, you're not sure if Lido drove away because you're seeing her profile as the camera slowly pans across the campsite. Then you finally see his car, but he's not there. But it's like five to seven seconds. Like, oh, shit, did he drive away? Is that the direction this movie's going to go in? So I just thought that was a really interesting break from convention in this film to bring up a li- what, sus- what little suspense could be created by this plot. Uh, I thought that was a really effective moment to sort of break the camera work convention that had been set up for the past you know, hour or so. So I just wanted to give a little shout out to that moment. I thought that was really effective and had me be like, oh no, Faye. Yeah, meaningful deviation for sure. Well, I suppose that's going to do it for this week's episode. But I've been looking forward to bringing this one to the group for a while, as I said. Um, and again, in answer to your question, uh, Heather, uh, I do think that the movie is a bit a bit heavy in some of its uh, its core content, but it, it really kind of it speaks to a, gr- a broader uh, potential and optimism that I think is is pretty radiant and pretty uh, worthy of note. And also, uh, and it, I, I think makes it a. Uh, kind of a unique selection for our love theme. It's uh, not only about uh, loving interpersonal relationships, but uh, recognizing the the love that you could perceive in a, an objectively meaningless universe, uh, which is pretty inspiring, at least to me. Dave, um, when that, Dave, when you put it that way, this is one of the most Dave love movies you could have picked. That, <laughs> after watching your movies for so many years and talking to movies about you for almost 200 episodes, yes, this is, put that way, this is a Dave love movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're going to be bringing you some more uh, love movies. Love remains in the air. So stick around with us for the rest of this month uh, as we cover a couple others. And we're really looking forward to those and really looking forward to you rejoining us as we uh, pursue them. Uh, of course, we want to thank the Movie John Podcast Network, who have been a really great, uh, really great host to us this whole time and uh, also host us. The number of all the so really great podcasts that uh, you should definitely devote some time to and give uh, some attention to, give some love to. So uh, be sure to check them out. Uh, write them a message. Write us a message. It's been a while. Uh, the last one that we got was my dad wishing us a happy new year. Um, so thank you, dad. But uh, of course, we want to hear from the rest of you too. So feel free to reach us on our socials, that being Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Butter with that one. Uh, it's not verified because we don't have $8 between the four of us, which is a little sad. And uh, also, of course, butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com, where we uh, look forward to more in-depth correspondence. So please touch base with us. Uh, we love all of you and uh, would love to see some love from you as well. God, wouldn't it be hilarious if we got Twitter verified through Twitter Blue? <laughs> it's an awkward time to make the investment. Yeah. Just think that would be, for at least a minute, that would be pretty funny. But uh, until next time, of course, uh, enjoy your crawfish and bush, and uh, we will uh, look forward to seeing you then. But uh, until then, take care and have a good whatever. This has been a Movie John podcast.